Amen. Well done on those names, John. I, I felt convicted somewhat last week when Derek reminded us that one of the reasons that the Lord gives so many names in the book of Nehemiah is because he pays attention to those people. And I felt like at least once we needed to give some names, and I knew John would do a good job. So thanks for reading those names for us. Well, this is my first sermon, I believe, on the subject of sermons. Uh, the first time I've preached on the subject of preaching. But that's what we find ourselves in in Nehemiah 8 because it's a chapter about a sermon. It's a chapter about the power and value of biblical preaching. You know, common to just about every revival, genuine revival, in history are two primary things at work. First, there is the faithful proclamation of the Bible, which is God's word, and then there's the responsive mobilization of believers, God's people. Strange as it may sound, if you read the history of Christian revivals, revival does not begin with the unsaved. The Lord sparks a revival by igniting the fire of his word in his own people's lives. And from them, the lost are won. In fact, we are in October, and October is... Reformation Month, where we acknowledge the work of God in the 1500s and the recovery of the gospel through the faithful reformers of the Protestant Reformation. And they knew all too well in those days that every season of Reformation in the history of the Christian church and every hour of spiritual awakening has been a time that ushered in a time of biblical preaching. The only true Reformation that ever emanates in the world emanates from the Word of God. This was certainly the case in the Reformation, which saw the recovery of biblical expository preaching. This was the case in the Puritan era, which saw the restoration of biblical preaching in England and Scotland. This was the case with the First Great Awakening and the preaching of Whitfield and Edwards. Every great revival and true awakening has been ushered in by a recovery of biblical preaching. Every True progress in church history is conditioned by a new and deeper study of the scriptures. And this is so desperately needed in our day. I feel often the words of Amos could be applied to our own day. When Amos said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. John Calvin understood that, which is one of the reasons why he preached in Geneva every single day and twice on Sunday, nine sermons a week. And that wasn't because that was what he was forcing on the people. That was because that's what the people demanded of Calvin. Luther summarized the Reformation this way. He said, I simply taught preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. But our day is not unique. There have been other times when there was a famine in the land concerning the word of God, and one of those times is in the chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And here we see a most encouraging event take place. The people calling upon the leadership to bring us the book. 
They want to hear from God's word. More than a populated city or a physically secure city or a financially stable city or a well-governed city, all of which were important for Jerusalem, what was most needed was a spiritually renewed city. And we saw part of what consisted in that spiritual renewal last week as we saw Nehemiah in chapter 7 begin to prioritize worship among the people, place godly leadership in place, and then practice what we would call church membership to ensure that the people who were a part of the city were truly Jewish, that is truly God worshipers. And so renewal, as we'll see this week, in addition to prioritizing worship and placing leadership in place and ensuring that the people there know the Lord, The main instrument that God uses all the time to bring about renewal is the preaching of his word. And so we're going to see that this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8, a sermon on sermons, preaching on preaching. Four points to our passage this morning in Nehemiah 8. First of all, the call for biblical preaching, the call for biblical preaching. This is in the very first verse of the chapter Notice again what we read there. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So notice the emphasis on who's doing this. Is this Nehemiah's initiative? Surely it was a part of what Nehemiah desired to take place in the people. But no, the people, this is a bottom-up movement not a top-down one. The people, the phrase people or the phrase the people occurs 13 times in the first 12 verses of this chapter. It was the people who initiated all this, not the spiritual leaders. This is a, as I just said, a bottom-up project, not a top-down one. The phrase all the people occurs nine of those 13 times in these first 12 verses. And this shows the importance of what was happening No one was going to miss this. They are rallying around the word. Some 30 to 50,000 people shut down the town to hear Ezra preach for six hours. They meet at the water gate, which was sort of the town center. It was located on the eastern side of the city and provided ready access to water via the Gihon Spring which was the city's main water supply into Jerusalem. It's the center of their community life. It would be their town square, their main area. So the people are there, all the people, together, standing in the Middle Eastern desert for a quarter of the day, and they don't seem to care because they're so consumed about why they're there. Now, I want you to appreciate one reality. They assembled as one man, we are told. However diverse their individual likes or dislikes were, which our congregation has plenty of those, however diverse our opinions or differences, the common desire to listen to the message of Scripture took precedence over everything else. And this is where a true renewal revival begins, is when God's people start putting away their secondary differences, which is why I'm so discouraged that we're not seeing a revival these days. Because God's people are being unwilling to do those things, but rather are gathering around other things. How they view cultural issues, political issues, whatever. 
and dividing over those things rather than being willing to put those things aside for the main things, the most important things, the preeminent things. Raymond Brown reminds us in his commentary on Nehemiah that the desire to listen to the message of Scripture must take precedence over everything else. In our own times, Christians are frequently divided on a wide variety of issues. They take a different stance, sometimes markedly so, on matters concerning ministry, ordination, baptism, the Lord's Supper, divine healing, ecumenical involvement, patterns of worship, their concept of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit, charismatic gifts, the second coming of Christ. Nobody wants to pretend that matters of this nature are of marginal importance, but to isolate our distinctive ideas is to marginalize the vast store of biblical truths which unite us. Raymond goes on to say, in the end of the day, we may not explain every biblical verse in exactly the same way, but as a common desire to honor, apply, and obey God's word will draw us closer together rather than separate us sharply from one another. It's a part of the devil's strategy to magnify our differences and minimize those immense spirit-inspired doctrines which honor God, exalt Christ, and enrich our witness. A passion to study these central themes of Scripture ought to draw God's people closer to one another. An insatiable appetite for the faithful and relevant interpretation of Scripture is a powerful unifying force within the life of God's people. End quote. That's exactly what we see in Nehemiah. The hunger for the Word of God is the context, it's the call for biblical preaching. The best context for hearing from God is hungering after God. Their desire is evident in their request. Bring us. They told Ezra, bring us. They didn't request. They told him. They commanded a priest of the Lord to do what that priest of the Lord was commissioned to do. Their desire is strong. Ezra's not running around trying to get people to come to church. He isn't sending emails inviting them to the Bible study. He isn't making phone calls asking if they will listen online to the sermon they dismissed. The church has demanded it and will settle for nothing less. They are the ones inviting the teachers to come and teach. In seasons of revival and seasons of renewal, the word of God is valued and the preaching of God's word is valued. A huge crowd is gathered as one man intent on one purpose and desiring one thing, to make their plea, to cry out to the leaders to bring them the word of God. This crying is coming from the pew, not the pulpit. They had been in captivity and were starving for the reading and exposition of God's word. And Ezra was the one who was chosen because Ezra, according to Ezra 7.10, was a man steeped in the scriptures. He had set his heart to study and to practice and to teach God's word. He had set his heart to do these things and the people trusted him to do that very thing. That's the call for biblical preaching. It's a passion, it's a hunger, it's an aching to hear God's word preached. Second, the content of biblical preaching, the content in biblical preaching. Notice the second verse. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. So I love that. Children are included too. Not babies, of course. Babies can be in the nursery. (laughs) But as early as possible, try to get children under the word of God. 
men and women and those who could understand. Now, we're going to differ about what age that should be, and that's totally cool. But the point is, as soon as possible, as early as possible, bring in all who can understand. That's what they do. And then in verse 3, we read about what happened. But notice the content. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Now, I don't think that literally means he brought the physical copy of the law, which he did, no doubt in several scrolls, because we're talking about the entire Torah here. We're talking about Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, also Exodus. Didn't mean to skip that one. Deuteronomy. We're talking about the whole book of the law, the five, first five books of Moses here that they're demanding. And in Ezra 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, or verse 2 of chapter 8, Ezra brings that according to their demand. Now, isn't that interesting? What they're asking for is not Ezra's thoughts on things. They don't want to know Ezra's five-point plan for spiritual and cultural renewal in Jerusalem. They want to know what God's Word says. They want to know what the law of Moses teaches. They want to know what the Pentateuch has to reveal about God and them. They want to know what the first five books of the Bible contain and what import they have on their lives. Bring us the law of God. Why? Because... It's what God had commanded Israel. That's what we read in verse 1. The law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. They're interested in what the Lord commanded. They're not interested in what Ezra thinks. They're not interested in Nehemiah, what Nehemiah thinks. They're interested in what the Lord says. They wanted to hear through Ezra what God had to say. And so Ezra brought the law to the people. So what people wanted to hear was God. Ultimately, God, through his word and through the instrumentality of the man who was bringing it. They weren't crying out for more announcements. They're not crying out for more stories. They're not crying out for more personal testimonies. They want the law of Moses, and they want it undiluted, 110 proof to them. Now, I love this because it reminds me of what I'm called to be and what your pastors are called to be as heralds of God's word. We are stewards We don't own any of this, and you don't want any of this. You don't want what I have to say. You want what God has to say. Now, what was a steward? This is one of Paul's favorite terms for his own ministry. It's the way he understood and thought about his ministry. In the ancient world, stewards were officials that were tasked with looking after the affairs or the possessions of someone else. An individual would hire a steward to take care of his household or make sure it was run properly or... A woman would hire a steward to guard and keep what she owned. In turn, the steward was responsible to run the household, to make the kinds of decisions that would benefit the welfare of the actual owner. Stewards were not owners. We were ma- they were managers entrusted with an owner's goods in order to carry out the owner's wishes, not the wishes of the steward. A good steward would act always in the interests of the owner, carrying out the owner's wishes according to the owner's will. And this is the way Paul and Ezra view their ministries. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes his ministry as a stewardship from God. And then he says, I refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. See, stewards don't do that. They don't practice cunning. They're not trying to wiggle around God's word or to tamper with God's word. They just want to give God's word. In other words, Paul does not take license or liberty to carry out his appointed task according to his own will. We call this 
imposition, not exposition. Imposition means I am, I've got a burden, I'm going to find a verse for that. Exposition means God's got a burden, I'm going to put myself under that. Which is why I don't figure out what I'm going to preach week by week. God can be at work in ways that I don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not wise to take time for topical series. We do that many times a year, especially if we as pastors are discussing we have a particular burden for something, we need to talk about something. Yeah, we're going to do that. But the ordinary way we're going to handle things is trust God to work in the chapter he's given us for the week. And he can bring things to us that we weren't even thinking about, needs, meeting needs that we don't always feel, but we need. Because felt needs aren't always real needs. Felt needs aren't always the deepest needs. Felt needs need to be understood, they need to be appreciated, but they're not always to be governing everything we do. Now, I'm not picking on Spurgeon, who preached his text every week according to what he decided to do, but I think even normally, if you read his lectures to the students, he would counsel against doing that as a regular practice. So Paul, regardless, whether he's picking his text each week or just walking through passages He carries out that appointed task, not according to his own will, but as a steward. He refuses to treat that which belongs to the Lord, that is God's word, as something that belongs to him. And so he treats it with utmost respect. A good steward cares for an owner's possessions, and so Paul maintains the word of God. He doesn't alter it. He resolutely follows the warnings, never to add to or take away from the Lord's commandments. So our task, your pastor's task, one that you gladly call us to and respect and enjoy, is never to tamper with Scripture, but to make, it, to make it more palatable to our hearers. Rather, we must seek always to present nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help us God, proclaiming even the things that are hardest for us to understand and accept. Paul's ministry contrasted in, in those ways from the false teachers in Corinth that he was trying to educate the Corinthians about, whom he called in 2 Corinthians 2.17, peddlers of God's word. They were peddlers. They were tamperers. They acted with insincerity. They tampered with God's word and used all sorts of cunning and underhanded tactics to tickle people's ears to get them to hear what they wanted to hear, and that was financially viable and helpful to them. But Paul refused to do that. He was open with all, and his honesty and his transparency were, on, on, uh, were, were for all to see, which is one of the great things about biblical preaching is you all got the copies of Scripture right there. You can test everything by what the Scripture says, and you should be. We have a Berean heart in our congregation that tests everything by Scripture to see if these things are so, not because Pastor Mark said it, not because Pastor Keith or Pastor Keith or Pastor Thad or any other teacher that might be coming up here to preach or teach God's Word. We always test it by what the Word says. So the first two points, you notice the call for biblical preaching came from the heart of the people to Ezra, and then what was the content that was brought? The actual Word of God. Unadulterated, unfiltered, given to the people. Now we come to the second two points. Third, the characteristics of biblical preaching. The characteristics of biblical preaching. What is biblical preaching? How do we know biblical preaching from unbiblical preaching? Well, I want you to notice three non-negotiables in biblical preaching, three non-negotiable characteristics that we see here in verses 3 to 8. First of all, the reading of the Word of God. Look at verse 3. And he read from it, 
facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the first thing is the reading of the word of God, which is why we try to, as much as possible, place an emphasis on that. We want to read in our worship services a substantial portion of scripture before we preach. That doesn't mean always we will. Sometimes it'll be six verses. Sometimes it'll be 15 verses. Sometimes like today, it'd be 18, sometimes a little longer. But we want to give honor to God's voice in God's word by just reading it. Because far from anything what I have to say, at least we will get to everything that God wanted to say. And so if we have to shave a few minutes off the sermon, it isn't going to be from the reading. It's going to be from what I got to say about the reading. Because the reading is more important. The first thing that they do is read the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.13 says that the church should devote ourselves to this. We should devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. We don't read what we think first. We read God's word first. The word is powerful in itself. God created the universe by his word. He brought us to spiritual life through his word. Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead with his word. The church is called the creature of the word. That is brought into being by the word of God and sustained in the wilderness until we get to the promised land by the daily bread of the word of God. And even though it was quite a lengthy reading, six hours, nevertheless, the people hung with it and were attentive the entire way. So that's the first non-negotiable of biblical preaching, is reading the Word of God. Be mindful of that. That doesn't mean every sermon has to start off with a reading. Sometimes it starts off with a prayer and gets right into things. But ideally, there should be substantial reading of the Scriptures within that sermon if there's not reading before that sermon. The Word of God should be read frequently as a sermon is preached. Second characteristic of biblical preaching is the proclamation of the Word of God. Not just the reading of the Word of God, but the proclamation of the Word. Look at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. It's okay to have stages like this and a pulpit like this. And beside him stood various leaders. won't reread those names because I can't do it as well as John. Then verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people... For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Here's where you get a tradition for the standing of, for the reading of God's word. Some pastors will say, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. It's prescriptive, it's not descriptive, okay? It's just describing what happened, it's not prescribing a command that we do that every single time. But nonetheless, it is a principle and it is appropriate to stand for the reading of God's word. We could probably use to do that sometimes, so let's do that. Readers, you got a shorter passage, have them, have, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We can do that occasionally. Or call to worship, we can stand together and read the call to worship together or whatever. So it's very appropriate to have um, people stand when the word of God is read. But notice that's not all that happens. The people don't just stand, but Ezra stands on this platform and what does he do? He proclaims. Verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra stood on a stage to proclaim God's word. He wasn't just sitting on a stool having a little chat. He's not there to tell jokes, to entertain, or to share his thoughts. 
He's there as an authoritative herald, a town crier. Ezra mounted a platform in order to be seen and heard, but he also communicated that God's word was coming down to us and we sit under it. And even as he was proclaiming the word of God, there was worship happening. Worship doesn't stop when John says amen. Worship continues as the other John comes out and reads, and worship continues during the preaching, and worship continues in the post-sermon song, and worship continues all the way to the last word of the benediction. And then we go out and worship God in all of life by first of all loving each other and checking in with each other. But as far as gathered worship goes, it's all worship. And you notice what Ezra's doing, Ezra is doing what John Piper calls preaching. His definition of preaching is expository exaltation. That is, taking what's written in the scriptures and worshiping God over it. Worshiping God in light of it. You see Ezra, even as he's preaching and teaching, how does it describe what he's doing? He's blessing the Lord. He's not just standing up there going, all right, Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. He's proclaiming God's word, and he's blessing the Lord over it. And notice, that is a necessary component of biblical preaching. Worship in the heart of the preacher. Now, that doesn't mean that every preacher needs to act and look and do the same thing. We, there can be quieter preachers who are relatively reserved, who, who nevertheless, you can see, have great passion. And then there's some who are very outgoing and demonstrative and you say, but don't 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 judge your pa- don't judge their passion just by their external gestures sometimes a person can be greatly energized and have all kinds of emotion not even be preaching the bible and get worked up over what they're saying because they really like what they're saying this morning not because they're excited about what god's word is saying and they're excited about what the people are doing that's all flesh there's no spirit in that because there's no word in that But Ezra blesses the Lord and the people cry out. Notice, Amen. Amen. The people answer. This is why it's appropriate for us to say during the sermon, Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord. And we could learn from other church traditions to be a little more vocal in that regard. And then they notice they bow their heads and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. There is wholehearted engagement with God's word. That's the point. Not that we have to imitate every single thing that's going on here. Okay, so did we lift our hands this morning when the preaching happened? I didn't see any lifted hands. We're obviously in sin there. Um, they bowed their heads. Didn't see any bowing of heads. Well, we did when we prayed. Uh, worshiping the Lord with their faces. Nobody got put their face on the ground this morning. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an emotional engagement with God's word. That's what we're after. There is a vocal and physical response to the preaching of God's word. Preaching is an act of worship. It does not come after worship. And so we see the reading of God's word. We see the proclaiming of God's word. Third, non-negotiable characteristic of biblical preaching, the explaining of God's word. The explaining of God's word. Notice verse 7. Again, list of names. And we read at the end of verse 7, These these Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read verse 8 from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense. That is, they explained what it meant. 
so that the people understood the reading. You notice over and over again the emphasis of these first verses four different times. They're stressed, understanding, 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 understanding. They say it in verse 2, they say it in verse 8, and they say it here uh, in verse 7 again. But we hear this again and again, understanding. Verse 3, understanding. So verses 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, all talk about the importance of understanding what we read. Now, I think that communicates two things. One, preaching should be clear. A mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. If the preacher is not clear... This is why I have such a burden. If anything, I want to see, and I, and I do, I do appreciate this so much about our church, but we need to strive and strive and strive and strive for clarity, clarity, clarity. Points help with clarity. A, a pointless sermon, I call a pointless sermon. That doesn't mean that you have to have articulated every single point, alliterated. It can just sometimes go overboard. I get that. But it, there should be structure to it so that people can follow along. There's things that they can hang their hats on. One of the reasons I put stuff on the screen is not because I want to give you a temporary visual break, but I'm trying to give you things to help notice the sermon is moving. There's movement here. There's movement here, and there's understanding, I hope, being given. I try to preach clearly. I think one of the reasons God made me a middle school teacher for 11 years before I ever became a full-time pastor was to teach me how to get clear and what I was saying teach sixth graders social studies every day for 11 years, you got to learn to get clear. And I wasn't. And the Lord, I think, over time has helped me a little bit to get a little bit clearer. But you notice also, not is it just clear preaching, it's, it's ex explanatory preaching. That's what's meant by understanding. The preaching is text-centered. It's oriented around opening up from the passage of Scripture what's there in the passage of Scripture. As you listen to sermons, ask yourself, is his point God's point? Is the point of the sermon the point of that passage? Or is it a different point altogether? That's not even what's in that passage. It's not just about getting all emotional around what the preacher is saying. It's exulting together over the word being seen and shown to the people and savored by both the preacher and the people. But the text is driving the sermon. A preacher is called to explain the text, give the author's intent for the text, and move on to the next verse. So that, those are the three characteristics, uh, non-negotiables of biblical preaching. Read the Word of God, proclaim the Word of God, explain the Word of God. If that is happening, it's a biblical sermon. No matter how, you know, how much you perceive it to be helpful or not. And here's another good word is that... Um, I was reminded again recently that we can listen to sometimes biblical preaching that may not be as dense or whatever, but the mature in Christ are always easily edified. We find what is good and we benefit from it. So is your, if you're mature in Christ, your first impulse is not to critique sermons. There's a place for critiquing sermons. I want to be critiqued. I want to be helped. But there's also a place for just receiving what's there that's beneficial to your soul. And embracing that and thanking God for that and being easily edified by that. So reading the Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God, explaining the Word of God. If you've got those things, you've got a biblical sermon. Then fourthly and finally, the consequences from biblical preaching. The consequences from biblical preaching. What happens as a result of biblical preaching? J.A. Packer says, The proper aim of preaching is to mediate meetings with God. 
The proper aim of preaching is to mediate meetings with God. And that's what Ezra's doing here. He's taking God's word, he's proclaiming it to the people, not in order that he would be thanked, good sermon pastor, afterward, but so that the mediated presence of God would be given to the people through God's word. That God's word would enable God's people to have a meeting with him. But you notice that all true preaching demands and elicits a response. So what are some of the effects of preaching on God's people that we see here in Nehemiah? There are four of them. First of all, godly grief. That's the first response. And I was so encouraged. That, was, that not only came from our Pastor Keith, but it came from John. And I think the Lord was doing that in our hearts this morning. What did we, what did we sense as we're singing, as we're praying, as we're, as, we're, as we're interacting together? There's a godly grief. There's a sorrow for sin. Even Jim Golly, on the very front end of his call to worship, confess, I'm sorry, we're sorry, God. We have not honored you this week as Lord of all. And there's that sense in which that is so appropriate. Godly grief is a great initial response to God's word. We see it in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the first response was sorrow, sorrow for their sin. Remember, they understood why they got shipped off to Babylon and then to Persia to begin with. It was because they had disregarded God's word. And so they're owning their part as they're hearing the law. They're under, we did that. That's why we ended up there. That's what happened. We understand the word of God was held up to them as a mirror and they saw themselves for who they really were. And biblical preaching is what God often uses to remove our self-deception and to help us see our need for a Savior. It's through the preaching of God's law that we see a need for God. This always accompanies any genuine move of the Holy Spirit under God's word. But that's not the only thing we see. Second, holy joy. Holy joy. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. You say, yeah, it's holy. That's why we're grieving. No, holiness also demands joy. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. Not, Darian's not saying shut up. He's saying, stop crying. <laughs> Don't be grieved. All the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they'd understood the words that were declared to them. See, the work of the Spirit under the preaching of God's Word is not to just make us wallow in misery. You know, boy, how was the preaching today? Oh, man, he made us sting. Man, he put us under the thumb and wouldn't let us up. Just squish, squish, squish. That's good biblical preaching. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I've, I've, I know this in my own heart as a pastor, but I've found that pastors can sometimes get in the flesh and grind on their people and wail on their people to make themselves feel better. That's not what we're doing. The purpose is to, if, if, is to explain God's word, and if God's word produces godly grief in hearts, praise the Lord. But it's not going to be because the preacher was making us feel it this morning. He was meddling and making us squirm. No, and the goal is ultimately sorrow that leads to rejoicing. It always ends in joy. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. As the people wept over their sin, the leaders didn't say, oh, look at this revival. This is really good. No, he said, get up. Get up. Quit crying. 
This is a day holy to the Lord. This is a day of celebration. Look what God has done. He's brought a man to preach God's word to you. Look at the city. The walls are built. This is a day of rejoicing. Stop crying. The leaders reminded them that this was a day of joy. God was not casting them off. He was merciful. Look around. They're not abandoned by God. God had put it into the heart of Nehemiah to rebuild the wall and repopulate the city. God enabled all this to happen. We're back in our land. And then God sent his word to the people. This was not a sign of God's absence, not a reason for mourning. It's a reason for joy. And all that had transpired was an evident manifestation of his gracious presence with them. This particular day was the first day of the seventh month, which was the day established to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. It was a day of joy. We read about this day in Leviticus 23. This feast was a joyful time. And this time trumpets would be played to remind the people that in 10 days, on the 10th day of the seventh month, the greatest of all days would occur, the Day of Atonement. It was coming. And so this was not a time to mourn. This was a time to get ready for the greatest celebration that takes place in Israel, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and walk it into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people he represented. Saying, once and for all, your sins have been put away. God is reconciled. And we have even better news than that, brothers and sisters. This is why we gather every single week because of the reality of Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that is a reason for holy joy, not godly grief. We have not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, a city of festal joy. So these gatherings, as much as we are aware of our sin, we confess our sins every week. Our goal is to leave this place happy Christians rejoicing in the Lord, thankful for his grace, thankful for his provision for our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you came in this morning and you're burdened by your sin. And you've been sitting here this whole sermon burdened by your sin. I got good news for you. You do not have to leave this service burdened by your sin. You can let it roll off your back and down into the empty tomb of Christ if you will come to him. He has promised to be a burden lifter. He will take your sins upon himself so that you do not have to carry them. It says right here that one day you're going to die and you're going right into the judgment of God. But Christ appeared to offer himself once to bear the sins of many. And if you will trust in him, he will come back not to deal with your sin, for he dealt with that already, but to save you as you were one who was eagerly waiting for him. That is the gospel that is offered to you this morning. So we see... Two other responses besides godly grief and holy joy. In conclusion, I want to give you these two. Third, renewed commitment. We see renewed commitment. Look at verse 13. And on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. I love this. I love this. Another consequence from biblical preaching is there is a renewed commitment 
for, from God's word among the people to study the word for themselves. See, what happens when God is moving through biblical preaching is people don't get less hungry for the word, they get more hungry for the word. They don't become less careful to obey, they become more careful to obey. They don't become less interested in what the word says, they become more interested in what the word says. And that's what we see take place here. With the people dispersed, the heads of the households on the second day come to Ezra, not simply to hear him preach again, but to study and gain further insight into the word of God. In other words, they ask the pastor not for another sermon, they ask the pastor for a Bible study. Renewal in the church is present when the people of the congregation, and I'll say this, especially the men of the congregation, start to hunger for God's word. We see that here. The, 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 the father's house, houses, the heads of the household, the men in the, in the community were hungering for God's word. They knew that a large gathering for preaching, while central and primary, was great. It was inefficient for everything they needed. Preaching is not meant to accomplish everything. It can't accomplish everything. Never meant to accomplish everything. So smaller groups were instructed, these groups of men, who were then carried that important teaching back into their households, back into their families. So we see the place for smaller group Bible studies, gatherings, things like that, to study God's word together, which is why we seem to have uh, all, a lot of them going on all the time, for which I'm thankful. You know God is at work in a church when the word of God is preached and the people start stepping up and arranging meetings around God's word to get equipped, to shepherd their families in God's ways. So let's pray for that. Let's desire that. Let's pursue that commitment together. And then fourthly and finally, we see prompt obedience. Prompt obedience. They didn't just gather together to study the Bible. They gathered together to study the Bible to do the Bible. Big difference in those kind of Bible studies. We've been in them, haven't we? I've led some of them, to my shame. Studies that weren't focused on life transformation, just focused on information dissemination. Just getting bigger heads, not thicker hearts. Just storing up more for the judgment rather than appropriating what we know to be true and living it out. But we notice here, prompt, sincere obedience. Look at verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They said, we're not even doing that. Verse 15. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. They said, we put up no flyers. We didn't even know we were supposed to be doing this. And, and they said, go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths that is written. Verse 16, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God. They did exactly what God's word says. Now, just to be clear, we don't celebrate the Feast of Booths, all right? It was a ceremonial event that took place in Old Covenant Israel, which Christ has fulfilled, all right? But the principle we do, prompt obedience to what we read in Scripture, is what we do. What did they discover on their first day of Bible study? they realized they were not planning to celebrate an important feast in the, in the life of Israel. This was a time when the people were to live in temporary hut structures called booths. That's why they called it the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles is also what it's called. And this is a time when the people were to live in these temporary hut structures on the 15th day of the month to commemorate how God brought them out of Egypt. They lived in these temporary shab uh, sh uh, shacks, so to speak, and these temporary tabernacles that God led them through the wilderness in as, they, as he led them with a pillar of 
you know, a cloud by day or cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And they, they were provided for by God. They were equipped by God. They were cared for by God. And they were to commemorate this festival by doing those things. And what did they do as soon as they discovered that they hadn't been doing it? They did it. They did it immediately, no matter how silly it would have appeared. Can you imagine them going back and saying some of this to the people? All right, I know we just got in the land. I know we just set up houses. We've got to move out of them. We're going to live in tents. And some of the guys would have been great, and some of the women would have been like, uh-uh, honey, we ain't living no hand. I just got this house set up. Um, but they, she said, wait, God's word said, okay, let's do it. We'll do it. Let's do it. Joyfully, we'll do it. And they did it. They gave their immediate and unqualified obedience to whatever God said to do. They had been committing a sin of omission, and they were prompt in remedying that. That's how you know, brothers and sisters, that God's at work. When God's people stop just caring about the sins they've committed, and they stop caring more, as much about the sins they haven't done, you, do I understand? Or the righteousness they haven't done, not the sins they haven't done, but the things they have left undone that God has required, they are just as immediate and prompt in that as they would be if they were just discovered that they had been doing something wrong. They just neglecting things, not even aware of it. Surely they would have thought, eh, God will probably give us a, you know, he'll give us a buy this year. I mean, we're just learning this. No, prompt, sincere, obedience right away. So that's a sign of renewal when God's people begin to care as much about what they've left undone in obedience as what they've done in direct disobedience. They realize there's been widespread communal neglect of the Feast of Booze. And this festival was going to be held in 13 days. Talk about a quick tent project. Less than two weeks, and we got to celebrate this festival. And they promptly respond with obedience, and they experienced even more of God's joy as they obeyed him. So let me conclude with four points of application. I've already gone over time. I apologize for that. Number one, let's ache for preaching. Let's ache for preaching. I just, I'm so instructed by uh, and, 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 and compelled by the example of these people to ache for the word of God. Is it something for which you hunger and long? Is it sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb? Is it joy to your heart and the delight of your soul? Do you need it more than your daily bread? Do you come to church desiring the word of God like a person short of oxygen grasp for breath? We should be aching for God's word. Second, let's be attentive to preaching. Let's be attentive to preaching. Did you notice that in the second verse of the chapter? Or I think it's the end of the, yeah, the end of the second verse, end of the first verse. No, end of the third verse. I'll get it right here in a minute. Um, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Are you attentive to the word of God? Listen, we live in an age of hurry, distraction, half-heartedness. If we are to benefit from preaching, we can't approach it mechanically. Preaching is an active exercise. When we stop singing, we start worshiping again. Worship continues. When our scripture reader arrives on the stage, it's time to grab our minds and focus them to pray and ask the Lord to arrest us in our attention, to banish fatigue, and grant us single-minded focus. He, he's, he's talking to us. Some of us need to pray against those things more readily and not just give in. To fatigue. Some of us need to pray against distraction. If it's disrespectful, and I'm convicted by this reality, if it's disrespectful to look at our phones while another person is talking to us, how much more should we not be looking at our phones when God is talking to us? Third, let's be animated in preaching. Are you animated when the word of God is proclaimed? 
the people stood, they shouted, they submitted, they lifted their hands. Now, I'm not saying, as I said before, that the Bible requires all these things every time someone preaches, but our congregation is not in danger of being overly animated. All right? Animation honors God, and it helps attentiveness. I can't tell you how many times I've come up, especially when Byron or someone is particularly animated in a sermon, and they were saying, hey, when he does that, it helps me. Like, I was like, what did, it, what did Pastor Mark just say? Or, I missed that. I, you know, I'm kind of, but anim, when someone is engaged or someone is responding, other people say, whoa, that, yeah, that is good. Yeah, that helps. So animation serves attentiveness. It also honors God. We emotionally respond to what moves us. Have you cheered at a game recently? Have you cried at a wedding? Have you laughed at a comedian? Surely we can rejoice at the word of God. And then fourthly, let's apply the truth from preaching. Is preaching applied to our life? Does it bring conviction and joy? How does it land on your heart week after week? And are you doing anything about it? Is it moving you into new horizons of obedience? Transformation, brothers and sisters, occurs at the application level, not the information level. I'm not after intellectual stimulation. I'm after spiritual revitalization in all of our hearts, including mine. So let's take God's word into our heads and our hearts and our homes. If you were to be asked after the service, what sermon have you heard recently that's made a marked difference in your life? Could you describe that difference? Could you describe a specific sin you were led to avoid, a promise you were led to believe, a command you were moved to obey, an example you were proved, provoked to imitate, a new truth you were compelled to apply? This is why we provide those sermon guides for you. It's why I try to take time each week to craft a couple thoughtful questions because I know that application works best often in the context of discussion, which is what we see here in verse 13 when the men gather to Ezra and say, hey, let's study this, let's talk through this together. We need to think these things through together. And that's why Sunday school and small groups and things like that are important, other Bible studies, so that we can have a chance to interact over these things. Well, that's enough of a sermon on sermons and preaching on preaching for this morning. May God help us to live in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful uh, to you for your word. It is sweeter to us than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We know that to be a reality, even when we don't always know it to be an experience. But Lord, we do want to know that more deeply in our lives. We want to know that more deeply so that we can honor you and worship you and experience the joy of the Lord that is our strength. How often do we, have we read that verse, thought about that verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and never realized it occurred in the context of preaching. So Lord, help us to know that preaching is a means of our joy. It's a, it's a means of our increasing in, in love for you and love for each other. So help us to do that. Help everyone who preaches, not just me, but all those who preach the word, teach the word in, the in our congregation to do so governed by these ideas and help us to grow as a people as your word becomes more deeply implanted in the soil of our lives and bears more and more fruit to your glory and our eternal joy. For we ask all this in the name of our mighty high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Ezra. Amen. Thank you.